Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today we have an absolute treat of a discussion all around litigation and the legal aspects of the provision of TPA for stroke. We have two guests today, Dr. Latha Ganti, who is a professor of emergency medicine and neurology at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine, and Dr. Joshua Goldstein, who's a professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. Neither one of them need a whole lot of introduction in this realm, and so I'm just gonna have them jump in and give you an overview of what they're about to talk about. Uh, this will be our outline today. First, we'll talk about the fear of litigation. We'll then talk about the benefit of IV TPA in ischemic stroke. We'll talk about the literature for TPA and, and stroke litigation. We'll talk about a couple real closed malpractice cases. What happens when you give TPA to stroke mimics, time to TPA and effectiveness? What else should you be worried about? And uh, finally, some take-home points. Let's begin with the first question. Latha, I think there's a lot of fear surrounding TPA. Tell me about that. The fear, I think, can be summarized in if I give this patient TPA, they're going to bleed. And if they bleed, I'm going to be sued. As we will see in the upcoming next couple of slides, the overwhelming majority of cases are actually for failure to give TPA or delay in giving it. So the first review that we have was done in 2008, and they looked at seven legal databases and found that 88% of the cases were for failure to provide TPA and only 9% were for injury from TPA, presumably bleeding. The next review that is done in 2013 also found that the failure to give TPA comprised 70% of the cases, whereas complication from TPA was only 5% of the cases. Move to 2019 review, and here they found that 71 cases alleged for failure to treat with TPA. So this one also happened to look at thrombectomy, but basically, again, same thing, majority failure to treat with TPA. Now, 2021 review, again, same thing. In all of the cases, the plaintiff sued for issues stemming from either failure to give TPA or delay in giving TPA. So for me, what's the take-home point from all of these systematic reviews is that it is more common for patients to sue physicians for not administering TPA in a timely fashion or at any point. And because of that, TPA should not be withheld or delayed in patients who meet criteria, and physicians should not fear litigation in these situations. So at the root of these uh, cases, seems like the, the potential benefit of TPA that it's providing, and that when we don't give TPA, that maybe we're withholding a beneficial uh, therapy for these folks. Tell me about the, the benefit of TPA for stroke. Right. So with TPA, there's a 30% greater likelihood of no disability or minor disability at three months if it's given within three hours. And that benefit drops to about 28% when you're talking about the three to four and a half hour window. This comes right out of the NINS 1995 trial. The other thing is, if you try to look at it from a patient or population perspective, they have looked at these data and seen that a 15-minute reduction in time to TPA. So if you just move 15 minutes faster, you have a 3 to 4% greater odds of walking independently at discharge and being discharged to your home rather than an institution, a 4% lower odds of in-hospital death or hemorrhagic transformation. So to put that in context, that's 30,000 patients every year for whom prompt IV TPA can make a life-altering difference. Really impressive. It highlights what should be driving us uh, for providing care for these folks. Now, I'd love to talk about a couple cases. These are real closed malpractice cases addressing this issue of, of TPA and stroke. This first one was actually a motor vehicle collision case. This is a, a real medical legal case. 
A 60-year-old male presented after a motor vehicle collision at 11.20 in the morning. As per the car passenger, he was driving and talking, then stopped talking and veered off the road. EMS arrived at 11.40, 20 minutes after the collision, found the patient nonverbal with right-sided weakness and being uncooperative, and the patient arrived in the ED at noon, so 40 minutes after this collision. With a neurologic exam on arrival showing a right facial droop, aphasia, motor strength that was one plus out of five in the right upper extremity, three plus out of five in the right lower extremity. The patient was hyperreflexic and hypertonic. The workup showed a negative head CT and a C-spine CT, and the passenger was not available to discuss or get more information from. So the assessment and plan was documented, given the increased tone, this is likely an old stroke rather than a new one, admit to medicine for altered mental status. So the question I'd love to ask, and I'll ask for the audience to maybe pause here, and write down what answer you think is right. Number one, yes, this is the right next step. His neurologic deficits are likely due to an old stroke. We don't know why he has altered mental status or for how long it's been. So admission to medicine is sort of the next step. Answer two, even if this is a stroke, the onset time can't be established. So no specific treatments are available in the ED. Or option three, no, the available data suggests that there's an acute event, such as a stroke, occurred within the last hour, and we should treat this patient as if this is a new acute stroke. I don't know, Latha, any, any thoughts on this one? You know, I think not having somebody there to tell you what time this happened or exactly what the events were, because now the patient can't talk, is super tough. And the next case actually is going to illustrate that as well. Oh, they do not give any answers to that first case here. And my internal attention span, which is about the same length as a toddler's, is screaming. Let's hear about case number two and hope that they come back to the first case. So this case is adapted from the neurology continuum from last year that Dr. Joseph Cass did. And so look here at a 53-year-old man who comes in with expressive aphasia with right arm, face, and leg weakness. EMS was given a time of last known well by his wife at the scene. By the time the patient arrived to the emergency department, three and a half hours had elapsed. Since he came to a comprehensive well-oiled machine stroke center, the ED physician was at bedside within two minutes, documented the NIHSS of 15, non-contrast head CT was negative for ICH. They had all his records there. It's like the perfect scenario, right? All his records were at the same hospital and they could easily discern that he had no contraindications to IBTPA. It's now four hours from symptom onset. And so you think, okay, well, he's a TPA candidate. We should give TPA. But the ED doctor didn't give TPA because the patient was aphasic and he could not get anyone to serve as a legal authorized representative. He tried to reach the wife. He couldn't reach the wife. By the time the patient's wife was located, the patient was outside the TPA window. So he didn't get his TPA. And what happened, the outcome of the case, was that the patient never regained his ability to function independently. And then the family sued for failure to administer TPA in a timely manner. Again, there's a tough case. So this leads to this interesting question of, do you need the legally authorized representative, and what do you do to try to reach uh, family members? Clearly, the availability of family is a a unifying theme in both of these uh, cases. What happened in case one? Oh, so so here, I'll tell you what happened in case one. The family arrived hours later um, and confirmed that all these symptoms were new, right? That that whether this patient was hypertonic or or hyperreflexic, that this patient was completely normal before this collision. So the patient had arrived really within less than an hour from this new onset of the neurologic symptoms, which was before 
the accident, right? The, the patient had an accident because of this acute uh, neurologic event. So the final diagnosis was the patient had a new ischemic stroke, but this was sort of figured out only uh, hours later outside the time window. So really this, this case revolved around what is this, is the standard of care, how hard do you work to find the family? You know, in this case, there was a discussion of, did the doctor really try to reach the wife, the family? How far do you go? Should you call EMS dispatch, the police? Take out the patient's cell phone and look and use that. Traffic light cameras, et cetera. Text of taking care of the patient too, right? I mean, if you have endless personnel to help you, it's one thing. But of course, you're also trying to take care of the patient at the same time. So definitely kind of difficult. In the neurology continuum, they do offer a couple of pointers. So Josh, you very nicely illustrated how far do you go? Do you check cell phone records, et cetera, right? But the verdict is really that Because of the proven benefit of TPA that we just discussed and the need to expedite the treatment and stay within the window, if the patient cannot provide consent for any reason because they have aphasia or confusion and you can't find someone to give you that proxy consent, our own guidelines, 2018 American Stroke Association guidelines, state that it is justified to proceed with IV thrombolysis in an otherwise eligible patient with a disabling acute ischemic stroke. So... In the legal world, how is this thought of? Basically, an intervention that's labeled as the standard of care by the field's guideline promulgating organization, which for us would be the American Stroke Association, and an intervention that is significantly reducing either morbidity or mortality meets the reasonable person standard. Meaning, what would a reasonable person want in that scenario? So if I'm having a stroke and I'm aphasic and you are my doctor and you are trying your best to find my legally authorized representative or family member, and I'm otherwise eligible, then me as a reasonable person would expect that you would give me the TPA. If a patient who lacks decision-making capacity comes to the ED with an acute ischemic stroke and they meet the criteria and no surrogate decision-maker is readily available, then the doctrine of emergency or implied consent allows the clinician to administer TPA to that patient. So kind of the first case, we didn't know that he had a stroke and then crashed the car because nobody was there to give us evidence. In the second case, we pretty much were ready to give the TPA but didn't have an LAR. So slightly different cases in that sense. But I think it's important for our listeners to know that if the patient otherwise meets TPA criteria and you can't find a legally authorized representative to provide the consent, you can reasonably administer TPA and not fear litigation in that scenario. Sounds good. I, th- I think it's really helpful to know that we, we should not be sort of taking a long period of time or withholding until we get formal informed consent from somebody if we are, are offering a, an appropriate care to our patients in the ED. The next piece is we talked about standard of care. Is, is that enough to pursue a lawsuit? To, to just say that there was a violation of standard of care? Well, yes. If you can prove violation of standard of care, that's definitely enough to pursue a lawsuit. You know, it's not that we know for sure TPA is going to make you better, right? I don't think anyone can say that. However, we do know that there's a reasonable degree of medical probability that you would potentially benefit from TPA, right? We're not saying that you'll definitely get better, but there's a definite chance that you could get better. And If you are taking this chance away from the patient, this is something that the law refers to as the loss of chance doctrine, meaning you didn't give the patient a shot at getting better. Not that you would know or that anybody would know that the TPA would make them better, but you didn't give them that shot. 
It's not relevant or applicable in all states because the law is very state specific, but this is something interesting to note in these cases as well. Now, you know, we talked a lot so far about time and not having somebody there. What about if somebody comes in and you're not even thinking that they have a stroke or maybe you're concerned they're having a stroke mimic, Josh? What should you do in those cases? And are you really worried about giving TPA to a stroke mimic? So this is tough, right? And this is, I think a lot of times when we are debating giving TPA, it's we're trying to move fast. The faster you move, the less time you have to think and gather information and the higher risk you'll treat somebody who's actually had a stroke mimic. And so a lot of folks think that the risk of symptomatic ICH in, if you give TPA to somebody who's not having a stroke is, is about 6%, which, and that's, that's actually not the right answer. That would be the right answer for somebody who is having a stroke, right? We know from these clinical trials that that there's a real risk of symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage when you give TPA to somebody who is having neuronal ischemia or infarction after a stroke. But if they're not having that, if then what's the risk? The ideal way to know that is randomized control trials. And it turns out we do have randomized control trials of people who are not having a stroke and got TPA. And what we do is we go back to the STEMI literature for that. There are randomized trials of thrombolytics for STEMI, and there we can look at what's the risk of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. And it looks like it's about 0.5% in those big randomized trials. So we start off with saying, well, if you're if you're having a STEMI instead of a stroke, your, your risk of symptomatic ICH is much, much lower than, of course, if, than if you are having a stroke. But then now let's ask, what if you're not having a STEMI or a stroke? And many hospitals have actually published their own experience of what happens when you give TPA to a stroke mimic. And I will say, Latha, we we at our hospital have certainly given TPA to people who've turned out be having stroke mimics. We've given TPA to conversion disorder. Uh, we've given TPA to people with who turned out to have migraine headache. And so when people have published their own experience, typically they find extremely low rates of, of symptomatic ICH, often 0%. I've highlighted here one study of a group that published their last 100 patients. And there's actually two references that Dr. Goldstein listened on his slides there. The first is Gebel et al. in Stroke 1998 and Chernyshev et al. in Neurology 2010. As always, the references will be listed in the show notes. You can see that there's three specific stroke mimics that make up the majority of these cases where they got TPA and it turns out they weren't having a stroke. Seizure, migraine, and conversion disorder. Those are sort of the big three. There are these other ones, much much less frequent stroke mimics, but what they found was when they gave TPA to stroke mimics, they often had a 0% symptomatic ICH risk. Yeah, I can totally see that because the basically, you know, the bottom line here is that if you're having a stroke mimic and they get TPA, they're gonna do just fine. And I remember when I was a stroke fellow, that's exactly what we did. Even if it was not 100% clear, we never worried about the stroke mimics. Now, that's super helpful. And now, along the lines of stroke mimics, there's there's a sort of neighboring territory of, of sort of mild strokes. And people wonder a lot about what to do with mild stroke. And I think there have been some updated guidelines from the American Heart Association about what to do with mild stroke. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And that is a new conundrum, as if we don't have enough things to worry about. The 2019 update to the 2018 American Stroke Association guidelines state that it may actually be full and therefore contraindicated to give TPA for mild non-disabling strokes. This recommendation is actually so new that there are no documented cases of litigation for giving TPA for this to date, but it, of course, could be coming, right? 
Now, remember, disabling is in the eye of the patient. Therefore, careful documentation of the TPA decision is absolutely paramount. Now, a lot of times people say, okay, so what do you mean by that, right? What is a mild stroke? A lot of times we think of mild stroke as being an NIHSS of less than five, but that is not the whole story. It's a little bit difficult to maybe characterize exactly what is a mild stroke, but for example, we can talk about what's a disabling stroke, and maybe that is a better way for our audience to appreciate what a mild stroke consists of. So regardless of the NIHSS, there are certain things that are considered disabling, so mild and disabling. Complete hemiaminopia, that is disabling. Severe aphasia, and you know, each of these can only give you like maybe two points, but even then, even if your whole NIHSS is only two and therefore less than five and kind of quote mild, these are disabling. So complete hemianopia, severe aphasia, visual extinction, even if just one point, any weakness that is limiting sustained effort against gravity, so a two or more on NIHSS question five or six, any deficit considered potentially disabling by the patient, the family, or you, the treating clinician. Any deficit that would prevent the patient from performing basic activities of daily living, such as bathing, walking, toileting, eating, or returning to work. All of those are considered disabling. Now, there may be more than that. If the patient is a singer and their voice is slightly altered by the stroke, that would be a huge thing. If it was my voice or maybe even your voice, Drush, that was slightly affected since we don't make a living by singing, and thank goodness for the audiences for that, we would probably be okay. For us, it probably would not be hugely disabling, but definitely for somebody for whom it's their livelihood, that could be disabling. So disabling is in the eye of the patient, the family, and sometimes a clinician as well. And the documentation of the stroke is very, very important. We always talk about informed consent for any procedure, but also for stroke and TPA. I think it's also important to think about the concept of informed refusal. So it's really important to offer the TPA based on the guidelines, take into account whether the stroke is disabling or non-disabling, document your shared decision-making process, and write down informed consent or informed refusal. All right, Dr. Goldstein, bring it home. Is there anything else to worry about after we've already addressed the lack of a legally authorized representative and stroke mimics? Yeah, I guess one of the big things to worry about is missing a stroke in the first place. You know, that, and that's clearly a big source of, of litigation. It's, it's failure to give TPA, and a big piece of that is, is failure to make the diagnosis. To, to highlight that, I'd love to just talk about another real closed malpractice case. This is a 38-year-old female who presented with the acute onset three hours ago of left eye pain, left-sided headache, and left-sided blurry vision. She had a history of migraines, but never that were associated with vision changes, and also symptoms were associated with vomiting. On physical exam, vital signs were normal. The eye's pupils were equal, round, and reactive to light. Extraocular movements were intact. This is all what was documented. Visual acuity on the right side was 20-20, but on the left was 20-50, which was a change. This person had normal eyesight, uh, typically. Otherwise had a normal exam, and the neurologic exam was otherwise documented as normal. So so this question, I'll put both for for the audience and for Latha, is, is does this patient need further neurologic workup? Answer number one, no. This patient has a history of migraine headaches and comes in with a headache and a normal neurologic exam. Therefore, no further workup is needed. Choice two, maybe. How about treat her migraine? And if she gets better, safely discharge with no further workup. And that response to pain treatment helps with diagnosis. Number three, 
Yes, she does. This is a new type of migraine with visual symptoms that she's never had before, and she has a new deficit, decreased visual acuity. And then last, of course, yes, because everybody coming to the ED with headaches should undergo neuroimaging. And maybe I'll start by asking uh, Latha, any thoughts on that question? Yeah, so Josh, all these cases can be tough. But for me, the one thing is, whenever a patient tells me like this is new, even if I don't believe them, if they say it's new, I always image them. And the reason being is I always feel like that is one landmine that I try to not fail on. Um, the patient has migraines, you know, migraines can present in many different ways, but the patient is usually the best person to tell you whether that migraine feels like a migraine or not. So if they say it's new in any way, I image them. No, that sounds good. And I, I would agree with you that this, this person both has a new symptom. She never gets this kind of migraine. And she actually does have a finding on exam, right? This decreased visual acuity in one eye. Because those are both worrisome. Now, of course, once we, once we say we should work the patient up, the question is, what are we working up for? Question one, should we check an ESR to look for temporal arteritis? Choice two, should we check an MRV, magnetic resonance venogram, to evaluate for cerebral venous sinus thrombosis? Of course, since the J&J vaccine, it feels like everybody is coming to my ED for, to look for this disease that they never heard of before. Uh, number three is this patient should get a head CT. And I put in to evaluate for brain tumor just because in this case, like, okay, we think about it for stroke, but this patient has a new onset event. It's probably too soon into her course to see a stroke if she had one. And then number four, should we check a next CTA to evaluate for carotid artery dissection? And maybe we should do more than one of these as the right answer. Um, so what happened in this case, Josh? Oh, well, so... So here's what finally happened. Her assessment and plan was that this patient was given uh, diphenhydramine or Benadryl and compazine. Her headache improved, it didn't go away, she still had some headache and was discharged with a diagnosis of, of migraine headache. There was not a documentation of whether her visual acuity had improved. And, and of course you and I could have a, a whole talk on whether response to therapy is a, is a useful diagnostic tool. But, but here's what happened in this case. And then the other interesting piece was this patient was seen by a first-year surgery resident who uh, was rotating in the ED who wrote the note. And the attending documentation was just this uh, attestation. So, so there was no independent attending documentation other than I agree with everything that the uh, resident or PA wrote. So what happened with this patient? Uh, nine hours after discharge, the patient was found down, had right hemiparesis on exam, and was diagnosed with a left internal carotid artery dissection with a left middle cerebral artery stroke. So there were really, uh, there, there was one big allegation and one maybe uh, medium allegation, missed dissection. The specific question is here, can migraine headache cause unilateral vision loss, right? Was it, was it within the standard of care to call this a migraine or did this patient really uh, need to be worked up more? And then the second one was that the attending never saw the patient, that there was just this, literally just this attestation and so the, the question was maybe the attending emergency physician never saw the patient. If they had, they would have done further workup. It's a tough case. Uh, we get a lot of patients with, with migraines and come in with headaches. So I think, uh, I think that these cases can be really tough. It's like every case you see could be a stroke, right? Absolutely. And then, of course, we have, once we talk about standard of care, you mentioned this sort of uh, proximate cause, like, would we have changed the outcome? And so I'll put here, you know, for the audience, again, feel free to hit pause and write down your, your answer. One option is yes. If they had only diagnosed this in the ED, antithrombetic therapy would have been initiated. 
And that would have prevented her stroke, more likely than not, right? Or loss of chance, as you said, depends on the state this is in. Number two, it wouldn't have prevented her stroke, but she would have been admitted and the stroke would have been diagnosed and treated more quickly because she would have been in hospital when her stroke ultimately happened. And number three, um, no, the time frame was too short. Even if the diagnosis had been made early, no preventative therapy would reasonably have happened or would have reasonably prevented this course of events from happening. Now, of course, we're, we can't go back in time. And so it's hard to know what would have happened. And none of us knows. It, this is only really an opportunity for, for dueling experts to uh, debate um, whether the outcome would have been different if only this had been figured it out. You know, talking about any stroke, any case could be a stroke. Can you talk about dreaded dizziness? I feel like that's the one chief complaint I hate when it walks in through the ED. You know, I will say that uh, there's, in fact, I think I saw a study that that chief complaint of dizziness had had longer time to uh, doctor time, like as if as if when when emergency physicians have multiple chief complaints to choose from, they they disproportionately uh, are delayed in, in picking up the dizzy patient. So here's a, a case. This is a more of an amalgam case rather than a actual closed case. This was a 57-year-old male who presented with dizziness. It started two hours prior to ED arrival. He endorsed having a couple cocktails the night before going to bed. Now that has acute onset dizziness uh, today. No focal weakness or slurred speech. He denies fever, chills, chest pain, shortness of breath, abdominal pain, or, or anything else. The emergency physician examined this patient in the stretcher, felt that this was peripheral vertigo, but given the patient's age, decided to get a non-contrast head CT just in case but did not call out a stroke alert or otherwise do anything to work up a stroke. The neurologic exam was brief here, stated only moves all extremities. There was no documentation of eye movements or gait. The head CT was negative. The labs were unremarkable. The patient received meclizine and felt better and was discharged home. Uh, several hours later, the patient's wife found him at home unresponsive, and he was ultimately uh, diagnosed with a large vertebrobasilar infarct. And here, again, the allegation was failure to diagnose stroke. Now, this, this case highlights something that I think is really common in our departments, Latha, which is this patient was picked up in bed, brought to the ED in a stretcher, and spent the whole time in a stretcher, right? Uh, does that happen in your ED? All the time, you know, and <laughs> I've even had a resident present a very similar case to me say, well, you know, I didn't want to walk him because he would be unsteady and still not make that connection that, well, if he's unsteady, then maybe this is a stroke that we're dealing with. If you pull up the next slide, I think we can talk about some of the nuances with posterior circulation strokes. They're actually easy to miss, right? First of all, they present with that dreaded complaint of, quote, dizziness. So we don't think about differential. I mean, when you think you say dizziness, we always think about metabolic things, you know, vertigo, all sorts of different things, right? It could be psych. There's a lot of things that can go into it. There's a couple of classic symptoms, though, to try to help us focus on posterior circulation stroke. I like to call them the three Ds, dysphagia, so difficulty swallowing, dysarthria, speech problems, and diplopia. Now, I think everybody does ask about dysarthria or the slurred speech. I rarely, if ever, hear anybody talking about, is it difficult to swallow? I don't know. Somehow we just don't ask that. And when they ask it, I know they've heard me talk about it. And then we might say vision changes, but we don't say double vision. Really, patients... It will answer the specific question that you're asking them. So you have to kind of ask them these questions. And then the typical physical exam signs, we miss them because we don't often check for them. They're laying in the stretcher, as you said, from one stretcher to another stretcher to another stretcher, right? 
And so they're laying down and we don't check their gait. How do I know the guy is off balance if I don't stand him up? So consider getting them up. And if it's really that difficult to get them up because they're unsteady, you got your answer right there. Consider a hint exam. And then the other pitfall with posterior circulation strokes is that, you know, when you do a non-contrast head CT, really that is imaging the anterior circulation. And in posterior circulation strokes, you're not often going to see everything you need to see. So it's very common to have a posterior circulation stroke and then miss it on a routine non-contrast head CT. So what you need to do is you need to do a CTA so that you can image the posterior circulation. I would say for, for us, you know, we, we talk about CTA to, to look at the vertebrobasilar vasculature. We talk about, you know, MRI, if, if you're in an ED that can do that reasonably because that a uh, better tool. And, and, you know, and, and really, I think in this particular case, as you've highlighted, nobody ever walked this patient and the neurologic exam really didn't document any of the pieces of the cerebellar exam, right? And that's, I think, another super common pitfall. People say, oh, you know, move your arms and your legs. And that's sort of all they document. Exactly. We've talked about a lot of different things. And, and finally, I'd love to just sort of get back to our litigation piece. What, what goes into a stroke litigation case? So it's very interesting, Josh. And you and I have reviewed lots of stroke litigation cases, so we know that. But for our audience, just to give you an idea, you as the clinician who was maybe involved in the litigation or had a patient who was involved, you only think about, oh my God, it was so difficult to, to figure this out. And obviously, you know, after the fact, everybody can make these statements. But it's also interesting to look at just the whole litigation piece. They, you can have multiple parties in a lawsuit and not all parties may be sued. For example, it may be just the ED physician that sued and not the radiologist who read these studies erroneously or the neurologist or the neurosurgeon. You will also have multiple opinions of multiple experts that can be either for or against the defense. And the types of witnesses that the individual parties make also go into the litigation. There are an incredible number of details that can be pulled from your medical record and from your interactions surrounding the stroke case. So in particular, who assessed the patient? How long was the time to make the decision of whether it was or whether it was not a stroke? Josh and I have looked at multiple cases where, for example, they looked at how long was your conversation with the consultant on the phone? Was it like, you know, 20 seconds? We looked at another case where the radiologist apparently spent 22 seconds looking at 87 images of a CTA. And then we looked at another case where they documented that the physician was never actually in the room. And so, you know, there's all of these things that you don't think about that can be accessed that are accessed actually after the fact. So in addition to was the standard of care met, there are other things that go into it, such as who makes a good witness, who is a sympathetic witness, who can connect to the jury. And then they also bring in economic specialists to calculate what are reasonable damages? So for example, in the case that Josh highlighted of that 38-year-old woman with the migraine who ended up with a terrible dissection, she had many, many years of life left and potential having a family and all this kind of stuff. So all of that also plays into the case, Josh. Yeah, that's so interesting, Lapa. And I think it's a lot, a lot of stuff that those of us working on the front lines don't necessarily appreciate, right? It's all it's all happening in the background. We're not aware of it. It makes these cases super complicated, I think, right, when they go into litigation. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, as they always tell us, documentation is your friend. But if we can summarize a couple of points, Josh, just for our listeners, I think one thing is 
if the patient meets TPA criteria and you don't have an immediate person who can tell you and you are running out of options for time window, then it is okay to give the TPA. The law will be on your side because a reasonable person would expect that you would do that. The second thing is, if you think it's a stroke mimic, you don't have to hesitate for the TPA because they are likely to do just fine. The third thing is, if you have a patient and you're considering posterior circulation stroke, make sure you walk the patient or be cognizant of the fact that they're in a stretcher. Uh, I think all that's great. There's, there's, we, we talked a lot of, about a lot of the pitfalls here and uh, the landscape of litigation. And I think that was about it. Anything else we need to tell the audience? I think that's it. Uh, Josh and I have really enjoyed doing this presentation for you. We've been friends and colleagues for 20 years. And if you couldn't get enough of this, then please be sure to join us in Florence next May 2022, where we do this for two whole days. I love it when the guests and experts do the wrap up so that I don't have to do one for you. So that is where we are going to leave it. I've been your host as always, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. You can find the rest of the ASAP Equal podcast series either at the ASAP Equal website or at the Alium website, www.aliem.com, standing for Academic Life in Emergency Medicine. Thanks for your time, and thanks to both of our experts today.